this is D.L. Hudson. Welcome to Church and Culture. This show is devoted to exploring the interaction between our faith and our culture. Each week, I will talk with expert guests on topics ranging from literature, art, and music to politics, liturgy, spirituality, and education. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to have Ralph Reed with us today on Church and Culture. Over the nearly six years of this show, we've had him on several times. In fact, he was one of my very first guests when we started. Uh, I'll just say this before I tell you sort of the facts about Ralph Reed, is that I've known Ralph since, I'm not sure if it was 1995 or 96, and I've worked with him in some cases very closely on, on various campaigns and including presidential ones. And there's no one that I know in this country that knows more about American politics and just politics in general than Ralph Reed. But let me give you some facts. As executive director of the Christian Coalition from 1989 to 1997, he built one of the most effective public policy organizations in recent political history. But After that, he founded and is the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, which is much larger than the Christian Coalition ever was, and more influential. He was senior advisor to the Bush-Cheney campaigns, both in 2000 and 2004, and chairman of the Southeast region for Bush-Cheney in 04. Now, when he became chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, he led Republicans to its first victory in history, history, okay, helping to elect the first Republican governor and the third U.S. senator since Reconstruction. He is chairman and CEO of Century Strategies, a public relations and public affairs firm. He's written six books or edited them quite successfully, and he's married to his wife, Joanne, and he's the father of their Four children. How many grandkids do you have now, Ralph? I have two, Deal. Two grandsons, one four years old and one two years old. Fantastic. Okay, Ralph, I'm going to just start with something that I was very troubled to hear and hear reported, and maybe it was twisted, but our uh, President Trump, a man we helped, and you helped in particular, far beyond what I did, has said publicly since the midterms that the Republican push on abortion, and it's particularly the reversal of the Roe v. Wade decision in the Supreme Court, is what cost us the kind of election results that most people expected we would have. What do you think of that? Yeah, I, I saw those comments, and I didn't interpret them the way some did. I mean, I think they were interpreted by some as President Trump sort of blaming pro-lifers. And that was not the way I read it. I think what he was saying was, the way I read it, is there were pro-life elected officials who gave speeches in front of, front of pro-life audiences for decades saying that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, uh, that Roe v. Wade was bad law, that it should be repealed, and that it should go on the ash heap of history. And then as soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned, and as soon as the pro-life and pro-family movement realized arguably its highest and loftiest aspiration of the last half century, uh, you couldn't find these people. You know, they, you know, to, to quote, you know, my old friend Haley Barber, uh, former chairman of the Republican National Committee and former governor of Mississippi, they ran like scalded dogs, yes. you know, and they didn't want to talk about it. And, and look, I understand why Republican candidates and campaigns wanted to talk about inflation and gas prices and the crisis on the southern border. But from the time the Supreme Court announced the decision in Dobbs, on June 24th, until Election Day, 
it was naive in the extreme, and in some cases bordering on political malpractice, to not have a strategy to lean into that moment with a plan and a messaging strategy to defend it. And I'll just give you one example. We can talk about this some more in other Q&A. I don't want to give a 20-minute answer coming out of the box, but it's a big and important question. I had uh, senators who were good friends of mine, who were pro-life, who called me up as Lindsey Graham was dropping his 15-week federal ban bill and saying, wait a minute, we've been saying for 50 years that this ought to be left up to the state to decide. The Supreme Court just overturned Roe, and the states can now decide. Why don't we let them take action for a while before we drop a 15-week ban when we haven't even passed a 20-week ban? Right. Now, I share that, and by the way, these are good friends of mine. These are some of the most conservative senators uh, in the Senate. Yeah. Deeply committed in their faith, strongly pro-life. I had another one call me up, a good friend, a, a U.S. senator, and say, I don't like being asked to pass a federal 15-week ban when my state's uh, legislation is more strongly pro-life. I don't want to vote for any piece of legislation at the federal level that is less pro-life than what my state is doing. Then I would feel like I was undermining my state. Right. I share that not to be critical of Lindsay's bill, which I have endorsed and which I am actively supporting and lobbying for. I share it to say we did not have a plan. There, the left, on the other hand, deal, and the Democrats, they knew exactly what they were going to do. They were going to bring to the floor in the House and the Senate legislation that codified Roe v. Wade into federal law and banned any state from being able to restrict abortion, potentially up to the moment of birth. Um, and and that that is, with just to be clear, that's the most radical, extreme pro-abortion legislation that has ever been voted on in the Congress. And they went further and repealed the Hyde Amendment and said taxpayers were going to have to pay for abortion under Medicaid for elective abortion. So I think what the president was saying, back to your original question about what President Trump said, is he said, you know, this only happened because I gave him the Supreme Court justices that I promised him I was going to do. And then the minute it happened, they didn't want to talk about it. And they didn't have a plan. And then the other thing you remember, Deal, he also criticized candidates who had taken a no-exceptions policy. Yes. Um, yes. You know, didn't allow for rape, incest, or life of the mother exceptions. That was their policy. Um, I'm not sure that the evidence is there that candidates that had exceptions did better than those who didn't have those exceptions. But I would say that in an electoral environment outside of a very conservative Republican state, it was reliably read, uh, that that's a harder case to litigate in a general election environment. I'm not saying you shouldn't take that position. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying you can't defend that position. I'm saying it's more difficult outside of a deep red state. And so these are some things that we're going to have to figure out. And if we don't want to be disappointed again in 24, we have to have a plan. We have to have a consensus, and we have to have a messaging strategy to deal with it. I think the first is we have to have something that we can lean into, that we can defend, and the second thing we have to do is we have to spend more time educating the voters that if the Democrats get their way, that abortion on demand will be imposed on every state in America by federal legislative fiat, and for the first time in 42 years taxpayers will pay for elective abortions under the Medicaid program. That is an well, indefensible position that yeah. only about 10% of Americans support. 
I want to remind our listeners I'm talking with Ralph Reed, founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. And Ralph, when you talk about we need to, to make a plan, what is the we who really has the uh, power and influence? Or maybe it's a, you know, in the sense of a group of organizations or group of politicians. You know, where can that plan come from? You know, that's a great question, and I think um, it's not likely to be this sort of Washington policy equivalent of a smoke-filled room. I know that there were meetings among pro-life organizations that were going on, and in fairness to the pro-life movement, everybody knew there was a possibility that Dobbs would result you know, the disposition of that case would end with the overturning of Roe. No one knew for sure, but we certainly knew that was a distinct possibility. Um, and uh, so there were there were coalition meetings that were going on in Washington to sort of come up with a uh, an action plan for what what our response our collective response should be. Um, I mean, other than waving your hands and saying how great this is, right? Yeah, yeah. In other words, a plan that, okay, for 50 years, abortion on demand was the law of the land. We've chipped away at it by passing federal legislation like the partial birth abortion ban. We've chipped away at it with these state laws, whether it was the 15-week bans, the heartbeat bills, or the 20-week bans, the the pain-capable bans. You know, and we've done a lot of other things, and we've chipped away at it, but now it's a whole new game. It's a whole new playing field. We we have the ability to pass pro-life legislation protecting life uh, from conception to natural death, but they also will have the possibility to pass state legislation, as, by the way, they have, in states like New York and California and Illinois that are more extreme than Roe was. Yes. So this is the bat this is the field that we're now on and what are we going to do? And I think um, the 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 challenge with those kind of meetings is I think the process of arriving at a plan, a strategy and a messaging program that accompanies it is more organic and involves more um, participants than a coalition meeting. Yeah. Because in the end, yeah. it involves not only pro-life and pro-family organizations like Faith and Freedom, Susan B. Anthony, you know, Concerned Women for America, Family Research Council. I don't know all the groups that were at those meetings, you know, Students for Life. You know, there's there's probably 10 or 20 of these groups um, that have enough, you know, um, stakeholders and grassroots supporters and donors that they would have a place at that table. But it also involves the elected official wing of the, of the of the Republican Party. If you can't get them to pass it or act on it, um, it doesn't matter what you came up with in a coalition meeting. And and uh, the last thing, not to get ahead of ourselves, but it, it is the elephant in the room, so to speak, um, it will also involve the 2024 nominee of the party. Because once you have a nominee, you know, until Election Day, if they don't win, and for the next four years, if they do win, they will determine what that strategy is. They will determine the language and the messaging, and they'll determine what what we are going to do legislatively, for the most part. They won't decide it by themselves, but that person, whoever it is, whoever the nominee will be in 24, because my sense is we will have a platform. You know, one of the, one of the uh, uh, you know, big questions out there deal is, you know, we've had the same plank in the Republican Party platform uh, since, basically since 80. I think it was reworded a little bit in 84. Um, but it's been the same platform plank since 1984 without a word being changed. 
what are we going to say in the Republican Party platform in 2024? It'll be the first post-Roe, yes. post-Dobbs platform we've ever adopted. So it'll involve elected officials. It'll involve donors. It'll involve party activists. It'll involve pro-life organizations. And it will play out over time, yeah. and it will play out in real time. Well, it has to acknowledge the the issue of subsidiarity because basically Ro, the turning of Roe threw threw a uh, legal issue back down to the states and to state legislatures. Correct, and so I think that is going to be where the the overwhelming preponderance of action and activity is going to take place. Um, that was the case before Dobbs. It will be even more the case after Dobbs. And so, for example, in Florida, uh, Florida had passed a 15-week uh, ban on abortion prior to Dobbs. And the legislature is now back in session, and they have to decide, are we going to go further than 15 weeks? And that's going on in a lot of states, and it's going to play out on a state-by-state basis. Again, it's a it's a rather symbiotic, organic process between the pro-life organizations, the elected officials, the governor, you know, constituents, and so forth. Um, at the federal level, as you know, uh, the House acted uh, quickly as soon as it was in Republican hands uh, within just the last couple of weeks. Um, to pass the Infants Born Alive Act uh, and to pass uh, restrictions on taxpayer funding. But the reality is, for at least the next two years, and maybe longer, but certainly for the next two years, federal legislative action is going to be nearly impossible to achieve because whatever is passed in a Republican House will be dead on arrival in a Democratic-controlled Senate and in the Senate, unless they abolish the filibuster, you're going to need 60 votes to pass any pro-life legislation <clears throat> anyway, unless it's a funding provision that could theoretically be included in reconciliation and, a, and in a funding bill, which under the rules of the Senate requires only 51 votes. So, you know, when we did the partial birth abortion ban beginning in the 1990s and then as you know, we passed the federal ban. Uh, George W. Bush signed it after Clinton had vetoed it a couple of times. Then the Supreme Court overturned that ban. Then we had to go back and pass it again. So it was about a 10-year process, 10 to 12-year yeah. process. But we had pro-choice senators like Daniel Patrick Moynihan who were pro-choice who voted for the partial birth abortion ban. I don't think we have any pro-choice senators in the Senate today outside of maybe a Joe Manchin who will vote with us on a on an abortion-restrictive bill in the Senate. So most of the action is going to be at the state level for that reason. Well, Ralph, let me ask you this, though. Uh, you talk about the next nominee sort of setting the platform and having influence on how this post-Dobbs strategy is going to work out. As I survey the, the possibilities there, I don't see anyone who I think would take much of a step backward in keeping that in the platform and perhaps uh, nuancing it enough given the new reality of this, of this issue being thrown back to the states. Look, I think... I think the debate in the Republican Party uh, about the abortion issue uh, is largely over, and it was won by the pro-life forces. You know, at almost every national convention from 1976 until, I don't know, let's call it 1996, probably would have been the last year, that was when Senator Bob Dole, who, by the way, was a dear friend of mine and a great patriot. Yes. Great American, a great man, um, a really good good guy. He, you may remember, Deal, wanted to add what he called a tolerance plank 
where he said, you know, look, I'm pro-life, but I tolerate people of other views. Everybody's welcome in the party. And I loved the senator, and I strongly supported him, but we were very concerned. And Phyllis Schlafly uh, was still with us then. She was still kind of a leader of all this. I was, you know, her collaborator. Um, we opposed that because we felt like it kind of singled out the pro-life issue. I mean, look, there are disagreements on foreign aid. There are disagreements on term limits. There are disagreements within the Republican Party on a lot of issues. You know, why single out abortion and say, we tolerate people who don't agree with us on the life issue, just just say we have an open-door policy. So, unfortunately, you know, for our relationship with the, you know, the nominee, we didn't agree with that, and we opposed it, and it was, it never happened. But since that convention, there has never been any attempt by not only a nominee, but by any state delegation, to my knowledge, to water down, dilute, or or get rid of the pro-life plank. The Republican Party is a pro-life party, and uh, that is a victory that was a huge and historic victory. Unfortunately, the Democratic Party, which back then, you know, circa the 80s and 90s, would have had maybe on the low side 30, on the high side maybe a 60 nominally pro-life Democrats in Congress, House and Senate. You know, you had people like Governor Bob Casey in Pennsylvania who were unapologetically pro-life and very critical of their party for its pro-abortion stance. Today, that's all gone. So the parties have really shaken themselves out to where the Democratic Party is a very extremist pro-abortion party, wants taxpayers to pay for it, wants it on demand, wants it codified into federal law, etc., doesn't want states to have any role at all in this. And the Republican Party is a pro-life party. I just don't see that changing. And obviously you and I have collaborated over many decades to help bring that about by bringing Catholics and evangelicals together in cooperation to make that achievement a reality. And it's something that without patting ourselves on the back, um, we can be very proud of. It was, it's been a huge historic achievement. Yeah. And you know, one thing I, you've got about, we've got about four minutes left this segment. And I just want you to take on this question. From the moment I met you, you made it very clear that as an evangelical Christian, you had absolutely no problem with Catholics or working with them, that you had deep respect for the faith itself, its traditions, its history. And so we collaborated on that 2000 campaign very smoothly, and I think very effectively. Why were you so different than a lot? I mean, of course, I was a former Baptist minister, so I, I had experienced it from the other side. But what made you so different? toward Catholicism than some of your brethren? Um, I think probably part of it was, you know, I guess I'm sort of an amateur political scientist, and I can remember um, as an undergraduate reading the studies that a very famous political scientist named V.O. Key wrote about... um, the Irish Catholic, the Irish vote and the Catholic vote and how the, it's, it's really significant stuff about how the 1928 campaign of Al Smith, who was the first Roman Catholic ever nominated right. by a major political party. Um, it was during Prohibition and he was a wet and the Republicans were the drive. So it played out on the prohibition issue uh, as well. But the, the so-called Catholic issue was a big issue in that campaign. And the Irish and Italian Catholics in particular, and VOP went in and looked at specific precincts in certain wards in Boston, okay, 
and showed how the voting patterns of Irish voters and Catholic voters shifted. And he argued that that shift is what paved the way for Franklin Delano Roosevelt's victory in 1932 and the rise of the New Deal Coalition. Hmm. Okay. And I thought, you know, that was kind of a eureka moment for me. You know, and I think, I know we only have about another 30 seconds here, so just real quick, I think the the, the African Americans moving from being a re- reliable Republican voting bloc to becoming a Democratic voting bloc, the Catholic vote uh, doing the same in the 1920s and 30s, and then in the modern era, kind of shifting back a little bit, we can talk about that later, and then the evangelicals going from being a reliable Democratic constituency to a reliable Republican constituency, those three developments are the two biggest demographic transformational shifts in the history of American politics. And I I had studied that, I understood it, I got it, and I was kind of interested in sort of doing the same thing, only for my team. Well, we did. And I think a lot of that rift has healed as a, as a consequence of that 2000 campaign in particular. So I'm talking with Ralph Reed, uh, founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. We'll be back in just a moment and talk some more. with Ralph Reed, who is the founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Ralph, I just want to make an observation and then ask you a question based upon that. And uh, Many, many good people that I know have invested a great deal of their time and talent uh, into telling United States citizens what's gone wrong with our nation, what's gone wrong with the Western world, you know, whether you want to say it started in the late Middle Ages or the early modern period or with, you know, 19th century Freudianism and Darwinism, whatever. And sometimes when I look at what they've put so much effort into, and it's so articulate how they tell that story. But when we were talking about, you know, how are we going to have a message in the post-Dobbs era, I would hope that message would be a vision, a visionary one. In other words, what kind of country do we want to be? What what do we want to see happening in the future of our nation, rather than just relying on scare tactics? Now, you can tell me that doesn't work politically, but is there a chance that some kind of vision message would work? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, but I, I think that you know, first of all, we have to acknowledge the reality that getting a favorable Supreme Court opinion in the case of Dobbs is not a guarantee of victory and, in fact, guarantees a backlash. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, uh, deal, and I'm not saying that this is a comprehensive analysis, but in my way of thinking, there are three sort of epical, seminal Supreme Court opinions that deeply divided the nation that were ultimately overturned. Uh, One would be Dred Scott, which basically ruled that an African-American was a... was chattel property, even if they were in a free state. They had no rights even if they were in a free state. Um, that was ultimately overturned by the Civil War Amendment, you know, specifically the 13th Amendment. Um, but it took 600,000 people dying in a civil war for that to get overturned. And, 
an entire region of the country seceding from the Union and going to war with our own country. The second decision was Plessy v. Ferguson, which ruled that separate accommodations did not mean unequal accommodations. So under that ruling, blacks could be made to ride in the rear of a railroad cart or a back of a bus or something like that. That was obviously ultimately overturned by Brown v. Board and by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And what's interesting about that is that it led to massive resistance and it led to a backlash that, you know, was very divisive and polarizing in our country. So if you think about it as an historian for a minute rather than as a political actor, um, it would be naive in the extreme to think that the left and feminists would have, would have a victory as historic as Roe and have it be the law of the land for 50 years. And then when that decision was revisited and overturned, that there wouldn't be a backlash from them over that defeat. And if we're not careful... Um, we could win the battle and lose the war. Yes. You know, because Dobbs gave us the ability to protect unborn life, but it also gave them the ability to pass radical pro-abortion legislation at the local, state, and federal level. So in a lot of ways, our job has become harder, not easier. Now, I still I welcome it. I yes. still welcome it. I still think, Deal, and I mean this, this is not... Pollyannish, it's not a Rotary Club speak, I, speech. I genuinely think that these kinds of issues are easier to resolve and easier to, to, to I, don't, I don't want to say solve or fix, but to resolve within a democratic society through the political and legislative process, especially if you have a federal system of government where you have 50 you know, autonomous states, and they can each pass their own law, than it is by trying to do it with a, a Supreme Court opinion. Because if you do it with a Supreme Court opinion, then everybody disagrees with you. Their ability to, through civic action, and through protest, and through persuasion, to be able to influence policy is foreclosed. And... You know, that's not necessarily a healthy thing for a free society, at least not a truly vibrant one. So what you're saying is there needs to be a post-Dobbs, post-Roe versus Wade overturning. There needs to be a vision so that that doesn't end up making things worse than they were before. Right. And I think it. I, I think... For me, you know, without attempting to speak for the pro-life movement or for anyone other than myself, I go back to first principles. You know, and, and maybe you can help me out here, but, you know, I, I believe that it was in an encyclical, and I think it was um, John Paul II, uh, but, I, but I may have it wrong. And but but it it, it was basically a, an argument about the efficacy and the prudence of taking moral action within the civic sphere to try and advance the good, and gave the example, as I recall. I recall that there was a use of a metaphor of going into a burning building, a house that was on fire and trying to save as many innocent lives as you could. And if you could only get in to the house and save, you know, three of the five innocents that were trapped in the burning building before the flames, you know, brought the house down, that was not an argument to stand on the sidewalk and say, because I can't save all of them, I'm not going to go in at all. Right. And, and so the argument is, and, and I think this is an argument that, is, that has moral force to it, you save as many innocent, unborn lives as you can, in as many ways as you can, 
however you can within the bounds of law and morality. That means and I think that was George W. Bush's basic principle. I, I think it was. You know, and so, you know, what does that look like? It means in the deep red states, passing the most strongly pro-life bills that you can in those states, and, and we've now done that in about 13 states, you know, with either heartbeat bills or legislation that looks like Texas or Oklahoma that are, that go beyond heartbeat, uh, 15 week bans and so forth. And, and there's gonna more, there's more that's gonna happen during these current legislative sessions this winter and spring. It also means expanding the infrastructure of, um, charitable acts and acts of compassion directed at pregnant women and women who have decided to keep their children. And that includes everything from crisis pregnancy centers to, you know, foster care and more robust adoption programs and, and providing assistance to women who've decided to keep their child. Um, and, and then it will involve things like restricting and defunding Planned Parenthood, having a comprehensive ban in the federal government on all promotion and performance of abortion of any kind, not just the Hyde Amendment, but through every government program, eliminating federal taxpayer subsidies for the promotion or performance of abortion whether it's Mexico City or whatever that looks like. So you just keep doing these things. And you, and and if I were to speak as a strategist for a minute, my recommendation is twofold. Number one, stay on offense, not defense. If you're playing defense, you're losing. If you're explaining, you're losing. Get on offense. Have something you're for, be able to defend it, and get something passed every legislative session in every state legislature and in Congress. It may not be an historic piece of legislation like Hyde or the partial birth abortion ban, but stay on offense and get something done every single legislative session and keep moving the ball. And then the other thing that I would say is the rules have not changed and that the likely path forward is radical incrementalism. By which I mean, we remain radical in stating the truth that every single human life is precious and made in the image of God and is deserving of our protection and love. That's the radical truth that we espouse. But the incrementalism is that we're eating the elephant one bite at a time and we're moving the ball three yards at a time. You're you're not likely, as a matter of both kingdom principle and the reality of legislative and political activity and action in a free society, to achieve your ultimate goal with one court decision or one bill that's passed or one election victory. That is not going to happen. It happens incrementally, over time, gradually. This is how you win. And that incrementalism is obviously driven by the kind of vision of human life that you just described. And I think one thing that George Bush had was very articulate on this point. And I think he helped learn that from you and people like Father Newhouse, a little bit myself. But he understood how to sell it. He could sell it to a pro-choice crowd because I saw him do it. And uh, whereas President Trump just sort of said, we need fewer abortions. And, and, and the various currents of political power, you know, came in our direction, and he passed more pro-life legislation than any previous president. Correct. And, and look, that, that vindicates and demonstrates the strategy of radical incrementalism that I'm talking about. Because here's what's so interesting. We could have gotten up when Ronald Reagan was president, and we could have said he was the most pro-life president in American history. 
and we would have been right. Yeah. And then when both Bushes, but especially George W. Bush, who signed the partial birth abortion ban, um, who who made the Solomonic type like decision, Solomon like decision that he made on fetal tissue research to to defend life and you know, to ensure that the federal government wasn't involved in trying to save life by destroying lives. That was a very courageous and principled thing for him to do. Yes. And then, you know, appointing uh, Alito, Roberts, Miguel Estrada, who unfortunately never got on the D.C. Circuit Mm. and probably Mm. would have gotten on the Supreme Court. Right. But we would have been able to say, and we did say, when he ran for re-election in 2004, that he was the most pro-life president in American history. And then Trump came along and gave us not one, not two, but three Supreme Court justices who ended up being the decisive votes to overturn Roe, gave us dozens of other outstanding federal appellate and district court judges, did all the other things that he did, not didn't just reinstate Mexico City, but made it far more comprehensive in ending the uh, the use of taxpayer funds to promote or fund abortion and overseas programs. And I could go on and on. Um, defunding Planned Parenthood under the Title X program, effectively defunding it, right. not not by making them ineligible to apply for grants, but by making the rules for the issuance of those grants um, so pro-life that Planned Parenthood voluntarily withdrew from the Title X program. Yeah, couldn't qualify. Couldn't qualify under the, or didn't want to qualify under the Family Planning Program. So these are, and, and the point is, Deal, with each successive speaker, with each successive Congress, with each successive president, we keep moving the ball. And that's what we've got to stay focused on, is continuing to raise the bar of expectation, stay on offense, keep moving the ball incrementally, while continuing to espouse the ultimate objective, which is that every single person is made in the image of God and is deserving of protection. You know, I... I have been tracking, as you have, the sort of the euthanasia movement, mm-hmm. which is just below the abortion in terms of the the principle of protecting innocent life. And it seems not to have gotten the traction in the U.S. the way it has in Europe. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think so. And, and um, you know, we've had some setbacks here in the United States, as you know. Uh, with assisted suicide referenda and things of that nature. Um, but we, we did have the tremendous victory a few years ago in, in Massachusetts, you probably remember. Yes. Uh, there was, a, where there was an attempt to pass assisted suicide and, uh, many of our Catholic friends, uh, because Massachusetts is more of a Catholic oh, yes. state than an evangelical state. Well, at least the, the residual Catholicism got worked up there. <laughs> it did, and that was a tremendous victory. And I think, um, you know, as the son of an MD and as somebody who knows a little bit about what it means to take the Hippocratic Oath, you know, it is a it is an oath to defend and preserve life. And, um, you know, I think that there are are, are a lot of people that are very, very worried about the, you know, the Pandora's box that would be opened if you could say that, you know, just as an act of compassion when somebody was, you know, suffering from a terminal disease or condition or whatever the argument is, that, that somebody can go in and just help them in their life. I mean, how do you determine yeah. consent under those circumstances? It's, it's very disturbing. And, and deal like the abortion issue, it will never rest easy on the American conscience. You know, the thing that people forget about the American character and about the DNA of Americans is no matter how polarized we may appear and no matter how divided we may appear, 
and how often the foundations and the principles of our founding may appear to be under attack. Um, the United States, unique among all the nations in the history of the world, is a country that was founded based not on blood or treasure or ethnicity or race. It was founded on an idea. It was a nation that came to into existence to advance an idea. And it is the most powerful idea in the history of humanity apart from the gospel. And it's found in the Declaration, and it is that all of us are made in the image of God. We are all created equal. We are endowed with certain inalienable rights, that is to say rights that are inherent to our very humanity, that are given by God, not by the government. They're not given by a king or a president or a congress. They're given to us by God. And the sole duty of government is to preserve and defend those God-given rights. That's I don't think the American it would, idea. I don't think it would surprise our listeners here, after hearing you that when you go into Ralph Reed's office, at least the office he used to have, right behind his desk was a picture of he and Joanne being received by St. John Paul II. That's right. In fact, I'm looking at that picture right now. And we were at what I think was, uh, there, I'm, I gather there were other private audiences, but I think that was the last public audience that he gave. Um, because I think it was, because we talked about it and how important it was for you to get there and, and do it. You know, before yeah, it, it was wasn't such possible. A blessing. That was November of 2004. And of course, uh, he was gone in February of 2005. Right. And yeah, you I'm got there grateful. just in the nick of time. Yeah, and but my point is, is that the first of those inalienable rights is life, the right to life. And so it's never, because of that, it's never going to rest easy on the American conscience that government isn't there to protect innocent life at every stage of life. It's funny how, you know, you get a lot of these uh, left-wing Catholics who criticized the founding because it was a product of enlightenment thinkers, enlightenment rationalist thinkers, and yet somehow that right to life, that right to liberty, found made its way into the founding document of our country. Right. I mean, their, in, their so-called individualism, with which the left wing often cites when it talks about America's various crimes, that individualism did not was not nihilistic. It was not Nietzschean. It wasn't a, a disguise for telling the the world that God was dead. They meant it. They believed in it. They were still Christians. Yes, 100%. That is correct. So do you do you think that, uh, I noticed at Kamala Harris the other day when quoting the Declaration, she deliberately left out right to life and right to liberty. Yes, she did. And uh, it isn't the first time that, you know, unfortunately we've had a, nationally elected Democrat who, who mangled the declaration. I think Obama did it at least once. Um, but it doesn't matter whether they quote it accurately or not. As I said, it's in the DNA of the American people. It's why um, it's why people and, and I haven't looked at the figures lately. It's kind of an astonishing number. But I, I think Gallup or Pew does these surveys worldwide on virtually a nightly basis and, you know, ask people, you know, whether or not they plan to stay in their country and if they decide that they want to leave, where do they want to go? And it's something along the lines of between 1 and 1.2 billion people say they want to come here. Now, why is that? You know... In the end deal, 
it's not because of the golden arches and the iPhone. Even right. though those are amazing inventions and contributions to the economy and the culture, it's because of the fact that our government, our nation, was founded uniquely to establish justice, establish the common good, and mercy and righteousness. And the purpose of the government was to protect and safeguard these God-given rights that were codified in the Bill of Rights, just to be clear and to underscore, as a virtual condition of ratifying the Constitution. I mean, once the Constitution, as great of a document as it was, was sent out to the various state legislatures to ratify, Virginia, among others, said, we're not going to enter into this agreement until we have a Bill of Rights. And those Bill of Rights spell out our rights, and the government has to protect them. And the first of those rights, among many, is the right to life. You know, I'm talking with Ralph Reed, who's the founder and chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, and I want to mention that you can uh, read more about Ralph and more about the coalition by going to the website ffcoalition.com. That's ffcoalition.com. It's just chock full of great information and chock full of great inspiration as well. So, Ralph, I want to say again how grateful I am for our friendship of so many years. You have always been someone that I knew I could reach out to in times of trouble as well as times of happiness. So I really appreciate you being who you are and appreciate you coming on the show, Church and Culture. You bet, Deal. Always a pleasure to be with you. And so at some point in the near future, perhaps, we'll be talking to Ralph again. There's so much going on with he cannot illumine. And so I want everyone to hang around, though. I've got another great guest coming just after the break. <laughs> 